0: It all began when she wore that short dress to the office party at the end of the year. He noticed her before at work, but uh, this time it was more of a hungry stare that he had, rather than just the looks at a friend. And she was more aware of uh, his stare than uh, anyone else's in the room. He was married, he had two children. He'd been in the office for some time, they'd been friends. In fact, he was the leader of the office Bible study. He was squeaky clean and yet again this was a temptation that he hadn't faced before, something forbidden and that's what made it all the more attractive. The affair lasted a month, no one at the office knew, or so he thought, and then that dreaded phone call, I'm pregnant she said and he didn't know what to do. Sound familiar? I hope it's not too familiar. but when we look at the Old Testament, we go to the story of David and Bathsheba, we know that it's a very familiar story, not just for them, but for many people in our world today. We read in uh, Samuel that uh, it was a time when kings go to war and David stayed at home. He sent Joab instead. As he couldn't sleep one night, and he went up to the uh, roof of his own palace. He noticed a young lady on another roof and he liked what he saw and he had an affair and she became pregnant He tried to get rid of the evidence and it didn't work. He thought he could get away with it. He thought that by having Bathsheba's husband murdered, he'd get away with it. But David's little chat with the prophet Nathan changed all that. What had become public, he thought, would remain private. What had been hidden was now disclosed. How do you deal with the shame when something like that becomes public? How do you deal with being named an adulterer or a murderer. Can you be forgiven? Can the pedophile really be forgiven? Can the mass murderer, person who takes 60 lives because they feel like it, ever be forgiven? Can the rapist, the terrorist, be forgiven? Well, that's the topic we're looking at this morning and we're going to look at it as we look at Psalm 51. uh, David's response to his own personal tragedy and his own dilemma. It stems from one of the blackest moments in his life, and he had a few, uh, and he explores both the depths of guilt and the magnificence of God's forgiveness. His prayer, as seen in this psalm, is a right response to the things that he has done wrong. So before we look at the psalm, why don't we pray so that God might speak to us and uh, help us to understand what he's saying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that it's steadfast and loyal, and we thank you, Father, that when we ask for forgiveness, you do just that. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles up, that's great, but I'm going to show you stuff on the screen anyway, so let's begin by looking at the first couple of verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Have mercy. Notice there's no claim here that David has on God. It's not as though he says, God, you owe me because I'm the king. He can't do a deal with God. It's not as though he can weigh up the good things he's done with the bad and say he doesn't deserve punishment, which many, I think, today think is that's the way you deal with God, weighing up the good and the bad. All he can do is appeal to the revealed character of God himself especially where God says that his love is unfailing and steadfast. What does David want from God? Well, we see three things here in these opening verses, don't we? Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. Three-word pictures. In the original language, uh, transgressions means uh, rebellion against authority. Well, you know something is right and you do the exact opposite. My family loved going on bushwalks. We loved going away on picnics, and loved going up the Blue Mountains. That was a spot of choice for us. When I was 10, my dad and mum took me and my brothers and sister to Echo Point. And the warning as soon as we got out of the car was, don't go too close to the edge. Now, being 10 and invincible, I not only went to the railing, I climbed over it and stood on the other side of the railing at Echo Point and put my hands up and said, look, mum, no hands. Needless to say, the punishment fit the crime. I did the exact opposite of what she told me. Imagine that sin was written down and all the others. What David's asking is for uh, if this is a pen that's being written on, that uh, this be washed and blotted out and you can't see it, it's smudged and God can't look at the offence that you've caused. Second word picture speaks of sin as a stain, an in-ground stain that can't be removed by ordinary washing. In the day when there were cloth nappies, I volunteered once to do them. We had four children under the age of about six, I think, and uh, yeah, I thought I could do that pretty easily. The only problem was I forgot to rinse them before I washed them. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, My shirts were in the wash as well, and they stank. And, and yeah, everything stank, and I never got the job again. That, that was the only good thing that came from that. <laughs> well, David's calling for the dilemma, the extra strength here. Remove the stench, remove the stain of sin, he's saying. Make me pure, he says. The third word picture comes from Jewish cultic and worship practices. Uh, sin is likened to a contagious disease like leprosy and places the person away from the community, away from God's people. Like the leper who came to Jesus and asked to be forgiven and to be healed, uh, this is what David is asking for now, cleansing and being able to come again and to worship with God's people. So three little word pictures here, but just drumming in again and again the seriousness of sin, rebellion, stain, disease, they loom like a large shadow over David, he can't escape it. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Uh, in these opening verses, if, if David speaks and appeals to the mercy of God, in verses 4 and 5, he now confesses that sin to this God. Although his sins are adultery and uh, murder, uh, he sees a real sin as treason. As, as rebellion against what he knows to be right. Remember the young, handsome Joseph in the Old Testament with Potiphar's wife? And uh, she tries to seduce him and says, come to bed with me. He says, no. It's interesting the reason he gives. He says, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How can I betray a God who loves me? Sins with the smallest we know are only the symptoms of that larger sin with a capital S. And we're told here that along with our parents' blue eyes and uh, perhaps their brown hair, we inherit an even more sinister trait. Sin is ingrained into our very nature. We begin life as rebels. Ask the young parents here this morning if that's true. We want to be independent and we want to be independent from our creator. Adultery and murder are just extreme expressions of that cry for independence. And as Martin Luther said, there but for the grace of God go I. It's not beyond any one of us to commit some terrible crimes. In fact, our prisons are full of Christians who've committed crimes. They haven't been converted in prison. They're actually well converted and going to church, and yet they have reacted to something and in the moment done something wrong or plotted to do something wrong and ended up doing time in prison. Given the right circumstances and the right motivation, any of us are capable of anything, especially in the area of sexual temptation. So none of us are exempt from temptation, it's just what we do with it. David was God's appointed king. You'd think he'd be above this, but he gave in easily enough. And so to this God, whom David acknowledges as being right and just, David confesses his sin to him. Well, when we get to verse 6, we get to the heart of this psalm. And the biggest contrast between what God's like and what David is like, we read, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. There's an enormous gulf between what God desires in us and what we actually do. God wants truth. And David has been caught up in a web of deceit. One lie led to another, which led to another. He tried to cover his tracks, but it's all come untangled. He tried to live according to God's standards, but this desire had failed him. So he says to God, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be white." than snow. I'll be clean. Hyssop was a small plant that uh, they thought could be used to cure leprosy. I don't think it worked, but they tried it. Uh, And uh, if he wants to be brighter than the snow, some of you who've just come back from the snow know how bright the snow can be in sunshine. And David wants to be that pure before God. This isn't a half measure that David's asking for. It's not like removing a stain from the carpet where you can still see, you know, a little smudge. David wants the whole thing, spot removed, stain gone, God hiding his face no longer from him, being brought back into the fellowship of God's people. But, you know, being forgiven doesn't automatically mean you won't fall into temptation again. What's to stop David committing murder and adultery with someone else and someone else's husband? Well, David tells us it's nothing short of a, of a radical change. And so he asks God to create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It has to be complete renewal from the inside. That's the only thing that's going to change. There's no Band-Aid solution here. You, you just can't uh, try to patch up the problem. Uh, so David says, I, I need to change from the inside. He, he doesn't want his spirit being cast from his presence. He'd seen what happened to Saul. When Saul, the spirit of God left Saul and became that terrible, uh, demonic person in the end where he's only keen and, and wanting to kill David and to hurt others. And so he longs for a new, he longs for a fresh start and obedience that's prompted by God's spirit. Is that what we pray for? When we commit a sin, is that what we ask for? That God to renew us and give us a new heart and a new start and a new desire to please and to serve Him. You know, if we don't have that desire for God to sustain us, then it's really easy to give into temptation again. And we usually attempt it at our weakest points. Uh, last week we had the Rugby League Grand Final. And I'm sure before the game both coaches would have been looking at tapes of the opposition and noticing the weaknesses. They would have noticed that this player is susceptible to a high ball and this player tackles with his right shoulder and they put that into their game plan. They look at the weakness of the opposition and so it is with Satan. He knows our temptations. He knows what we fall for. For some it's sexual desire. For others it's a temptation of pride or power, or laziness, or possessions, or gossip. And he attacks us at those weak points. And so we need to pray pray like David for God's spirit to create in us a continual desire to do what God wants. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Create in me a desire to please you. And finally, as we come to the end of this psalm, uh, we see that although forgiven, the enormity of this sin still continues to haunt him. His feelings of guilt weigh so heavily upon him that he's stained into silence. He can't speak. And he asks God to open his lips so once again he can join with the congregation and praise God but he knows that what God really desires is not an outward show, but a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, a repentant heart. To be utterly broken before God, to be overwhelmed by the seriousness of our sin, begins a path of forgiveness and restoration and renewal. So to be truly forgiven, we need two things. We need to understand the seriousness of our sin We need to know the power and forgiveness of God. and Sometimes I think we underestimate the first. Let's focus for a moment just on the nature of sin and what it really is. It's one of the great themes of Paul's book of the Romans when he writes in chapter 1 about the nature of sin. Uh, Paul describes it there as something that empowers us to suppress the truth about who God really is. And so we read their words like this. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. When the truth is suppressed, the lie is embraced. We believe other stuff that is true of the world, which is just not true. We worship and serve and love God's substitutes and have a deep and unshakable and compelling Preference for these things other than God. See, the root of sin is having a heart that prefers anything else but God. I'd rather walk over burning coals than acknowledge my sin to God. Sin, as David acknowledged, is not mainly about what we do but who we are. Before you became a Christian, sin is not some alien power that invaded you. It's our natural preference. It's our exchange of God for God's substitutes. It's our suppression of the truth about God. It's our heart's hostility to God. It's who we are to the very bottom of our hearts until we meet Jesus. We become new creations in Christ. Have a look at that quote for a minute. I think that relates sometimes to some of the political things that are going on at the moment, doesn't it? In John's Gospel, Jesus says that we are guilty sinners not because we are victims of the darkness, but because we are lovers of the darkness. In Mark, he sees sin not as just a surface issue, but rather something that wells up from the inside. He writes there, What comes out of a man is not what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from the inside and make a man unclean. By ourselves, we can no more stop sinning than a spider stops spinning a web. When we... Try to be good, we fail, but we know God's rules to be right, we do the wrong thing, and when we sense the warmth of temptation, we hone him like a heat-seeking missile. We fail God, we fall short of his standards, we break his rules, we fling mud in his face, and do we really think we can do a deal with God? I guess you all know the phrase, being sent to Siberia. Uh, It can mean as little as being um, kicked out of a group at school. It can mean being unfriended on Facebook. But originally it was a death sentence. Uh, Rarely did prisoners who were sent to Siberia come back to tell the tale. Uh, Here's a lovely couple. Alexander III was one of the Tsars of Russia in the late 19th century. And he's known for his harshness and repression and persecution of his own people, but especially the Jews. His wife was very different, Maria. She was uh, a, a lady who lived a contrasting life of generosity and compassion. One day, she came upon a written order signed by her husband lying on his desk. It read this about a man and his family. Pardon impossible to be sent to Siberia. Overwhelmed with grief for this man that she'd never met and the the possible ramifications for his family, she did something to that order that changed the man's life forever. What do you think she did? She changed the comma pardon, impossible, to be sent to Siberia. When Jesus spoke to the women who was caught in adultery and the religious leaders were trying to uh, find ways to stone her to death, Jesus stepped in and changed the comma. When the thief on the cross who deserved death and punishment cried out to Jesus for help, he changed the comma. When you and I are burdened with sin and disease and despair, cry out to God we hear those wonderful words that Stuart told us before come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest we can only have rest and forgiveness when Jesus changes the comma the good news is that we can be forgiven no matter what the crime and when we are in Christ when Jesus died on the cross he provided a black hole into which our filth and failure can be thrown and never seen again. However dreadful the crime, however bad we've been, that crime can be forgiven and forgotten. God no longer remembers it. We might be left with the scars. We have to deal with that. But when we ask for forgiveness, he does forgive. In Jeremiah it says, I will remember your sins no more. In Isaiah, I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud. The Apostle John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, I don't know all of you well, but I'm sure, like me, there are some things you feel are greater sins than others. Things you've done in the past, you think, I don't really know if God can forgive me. I, I know it up here, but I'm not really sure down here if the thing that I've done that God can forgive me. Be assured today, as David was, that when we call upon the steadfast love of Jesus, we can be forgiven. Pray for a pure heart. Pray for a fresh start. And pray that God would open your lips so that your mouths would declare the praise of God as you know forgiveness full and free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that David felt it. We thank you for those in the New Testament who ran into Jesus and knew that they had been forgiven as well. Thank you that you forgive us. Help us to ask for a pure heart so that we might continually turn to you and desire what you desire. For Jesus' sake. Amen.